This is the last Sunday after Epiphany, and we now move next Sunday into Lent, which is uh, a long preparatory season before Easter. And so I want to say some things about all three of the readings today, because uh, in the first reading we have an Epiphany, and in the last reading from the Gospel we have an Epiphany, and then in Second Peter we have some comments that uh, I thought would be interesting from the standpoint of biblical interpretation and the opportunity for a little uh, history of uh, the dating of the biblical texts, just so, just so you know. Uh, in Exodus, Moses is going up to the mountain, and there's been tension and Aaron is in on this. There's some difficulty. I don't want to focus on all of that. But he's gone up to be with God on the mountain. And the mountain has now the cloud on it and the fire and all of this going on. Uh, and sometimes the names for God change in the Hebrew Bible. So I suspect this, I, have, I didn't look it up, but I suspect this is Elohim. Because that's the image of God for the God of the cloud, the God of, you know, sort of the mystery, mysterious uh, expression of God. Yahweh is more physical. You know, it's Yahweh that goes and closes the door of the ark and uh, is very anthropomorphic in his, in his uh, demeanor in, in the Hebrew Bible. But Moses has gone up there to, to receive the covenant. And when he comes down, he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And next week, Jesus will go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So there is some similarity to this. Moses comes down, and when he comes down from the mountain, his, his uh, visage has been transformed. And he's glowing in some way. Uh, but it's also clear that his role is to become the mediator between uh, God and humanity through the covenant. And so we have uh, b the belief as Christian people that Jesus has this mediatorial role uh, to play in the world. And by extension, all of us, through being participants uh, in the baptismal covenant, have a role and a vocation to be reconcilers, peacemakers, uh, people who are about uh, bringing things together, reconciling us to one, one to another. Page 855 of the Book of Common Prayer. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. That's the mission of the church. Some people think the mission of the church is what it's the, what's at the end of Matthew's gospel. Go therefore into the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and know that I am with you always, even unto the end of the ages. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. Then we get to the next thing. But it's sometimes important to remind ourselves of this. So Moses is transfigured. And we're going to speak in a few minutes about Jesus having been transfigured and what that means. But first, Second Peter. 
Most biblical scholars believe that 2 Peter is the latest piece of writing in the New Testament. So there's 1 Peter, and 2 Peter may date as late as 115 A.D. So let's not talk today about the Petrine authorship of 2 Peter. (laughs) That's another issue. But there are biblical scholars who think two things. They agree with this dating. Richard Bauckman, Bauckman, in his commentary on this in the HarperCollins Bible Commentary. By the way, if you want to buy a one-volume Bible commentary, that's the one to get. A one-volume commentary on every book of the Bible. Uh, This is the best one, I think, for, for most people. In its striking combination of Hellenistic religious language and apocalyptic eschatology, more later, 2 Peter provides a model for the church's perennial task of retaining the gospel's essential content while giving it meaningful expression in new cultural contexts. I have a book that Richard Balcom wrote a few years ago called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it's a very, very uh, scholarly, it's not a popular book, but it's a very, very detailed uh, commentary on uh, the view, how we would view this if, if a, a significant part of the New Testament was eyewitness testimony. So he, he talks about some things that are uh, very, very interesting with regard to that because there is some indication that even if Second Peter is late, I should stop for a minute and tell you a story. In 1994, I took a class at the Pacific School of Religion by uh, Dr. James Vanderkam. He is one of the world experts on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He teaches at Notre Dame. He's not a Roman Catholic. He comes from the Reformed tradition. And he wrote a book called The Introduction to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which has been revised. And it's a book that the popular reader can read. But he was talking about the finds at Qumran in all these different caves. And some places they had some scrolls that were rolled up and put in jars and stored. And in other places they had scrolls that were left on the ground. And in other places they had a lot of fragments that had gotten underneath the dirt. So you'd have a piece of papyrus that was like this big or about this big or, you know, all of that. So that stuff got all sifted and brought out and people have been going through it, going through it, going through it. So when I was in seminary in the, ni- in the middle 1970s, there was a piperologist by the name of Monsignor Jose O'Callaghan. <laughs> <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> okay? Jose O'Callaghan had found a fragment in one of the caves. There, there's some Greek stuff in, in these caves, too, not just Hebrew. And he believed it to be a fragment of Second Peter. If he was right, it would immediately consign about seven tons of biblical scholarship to the flames, right? (laughs) So, he said, most of the people in his field here in the United States 
read this article in one of these, you know, textual reality publications and said, no, 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 it's hooey, you know. So he said, in Europe, they haven't let this go. This is big. In Europe, this is now 1994, he said. So he said, what has happened is that at the University of Salamanca in Spain, <coughs> O'Callaghan was a Roman Catholic priest who obviously had a Spanish mother and an Irish father, right? But he grew up in Spain. Anyway, they did a computer search they, uh, of all the extant Greek literature that we know about that exists, which is all now on the computer, okay? There's a, there's a, there is a, a project that is being uh, undertaken now in the last five years to photograph and digitalize every Greek New Testament manuscript, to photograph it. So in this case, they went through and they asked the computer this question. They said, these three words or four words that are on this fragment that he said is from Second Peter, what is the mathematical probability that they came from something, the juxtaposition of the words, that they came from something other than Second Peter? And the answer came back, one in four million three hundred and sixty-two, or something like this, right? So all he said to, to us was, stay tuned. <laughs> well, I've been waiting, you know, it's 20 years now, I haven't heard anything new. But in any case, we, we uh, some biblical scholars who agree that with the late dating of Second Peter also say that when uh, the, the, the writer says here uh, what he heard Jesus say is a more primitive strand of the tradition than what's in the gospel. So sometimes something that's later can be closer to the original. So it's an interesting uh, thing to reflect about in some ways. The thing that I like in this text uh, is uh, private interpretations of scripture have their limits and in every age there are those who wish to give the biblical text the true interpretation. So in this epistle it says, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So when we think about this, uh, it makes us realize that uh, nowadays we live in an era where my opinion is as good as your opinion, right? And we come from a, a Christian tradition that believes in the church and believes that the church is prior to the scriptures. So the interpretive processes that are involved here involve the whole community of faith and not just individuals who have arrived at a particular viewpoint. But also there are uh, academic and intellectual uh, forces at work in the culture which suggest that um, we, we think more recent findings and more recent opinions tend to be truer than ones from the past. And I've just finished reading a biography of C.S. Lewis where uh, Alistair McGrath quotes Lewis speaking about something that was one of his pet things, 
and it's called chronological snobbery. <laughs> so I'll tell you how I, about me. I'm a great reader, as you know, and I, but what, if I'm interested in something in some academic field, the first thing I do is look at the introduction to the book and see when it was written. Right? So if it was James Vanderkam writing something in uh, 1987, I would say, no, I want something from 1994 or 2003 or something like this, right? Now, that's not altogether wrong, but it is also important to understand that there are things that are earlier that may, in fact, embody just as much, if not more, truth. Lewis used to say, when you read a new book, you should read an old book to get some idea of what the flow of this, because we cannot know the future, we do know the present, and we do know the past and what flowed out of the past in terms of the great tradition. I'm not speaking about this just in terms of the church or theology. That's how that all works. Liter uh, literary interpretation, all of those kinds of things, uh, rely on the tradition that has brought us to this point. And this point, we know what we're, people are doing at, at the most recent, but it's helpful to know how they understood it in the past. You know, like, what did words mean? We've talked about this over the last several weeks. Words mean different things now than they did when the King James Bible was published in 1611. There are 500 words in the King James Bible that don't mean what they did in 1611. So it's important for us to have some idea of what that means. So Second Peter has always been comforting to me in that regard. Now, Matthew's version of the transfiguration. Uh, Father Thomas Keating speaks about the event this way. I just love the way he writes about this. What did Jesus look like, you know? The divine source of his human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light, and reading the Transfiguration story here reminds us that Christi Christmas Epiphany has understood God's action in Jesus as the bringing of the illuminative processes of God at work to us in everything that we do. A long time ago, I read a book, a, a, an old book, chronological, called A Serious Call to the Devout and Holy Life by William Law. And he wrote it in the end of the 17th, the beginning of the 18th century. He also wrote a book called On the Absolute Unwarrantedness of Stage Entertainment. So you can tell that he was not really good dinner company. <laughs> but this is a, a very, very good book. It's an, about Anglican spirituality and its, and its origins and so forth. But in this book, the reason I mention it is that he talks all the time about the processes of Christ. The processes of Christ that work in you. The processes of Christ that work in us. And so when we think about it in, in this sense, we see that the illuminative process is present in people. In uh, spiritual writing, they would refer to what Jesus looked like as expressing or reflecting the uncreated light. Now, you've seen this in people sometimes. I have a couple, three or four times in my life. 
The one that I remember the, the most vividly was that in 1973, I was at Grace Cathedral uh, because I had to come back and meet with the commission on the ministry uh, while I was in the process to be ordained. And the Trinity Institute uh, had one of their things there, and uh, it was one of the people who spoke was Brother Roger Schultz, who was the founder of the Teze community, along with Max Thurian and everything. So a friend of mine who knew him and was with them on this lecture circuit asked me at a break, would I like to come and meet Brother Roger? And I said, yes, I, I would very much like to do that. So he took me into the room to introduce me to him. And he had a look on his face, I mean, the way he looked, it absolutely shone. It was light that was not generated, but it was just uncreated. It was there. You could see it. It was some kind of illumination. And also the look uh, that St. Anthony of Egypt was supposed to have when he came out of his cave, you know, back in three, 250 A.D. And St. Athanasius writes about him in his biography. He said, Anthony came out of the cave. Everybody's standing around. The guy had been in the cave for 25 years. He comes out. Here was a man who didn't look particularly happy to see all these people. He wasn't upset to see them. He had not been wasted by austerities. He looked absolutely content with himself. A man at home with himself. Wouldn't you like somebody to say that about you? You know? So when we think about what the Savior looked like at the Transfiguration, it might be something like that. There are two other things to say. One is uh, something about mountaintop experiences. And in the uniqueness of Matthew's gospel, uh, unlike the other two, Mark and Luke, what Jesus did in this account. Most of us, when we have these exhilarating experiences, or, or many at least, want to freeze them. And Peter, who I've always viewed as every man in the New Testament, said it's a good thing we're here to Jesus we should build three booths in the old translation. We should build three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's, this, let's have this go on forever, right? So what accompanies this immediately is the voice from God, which scares the daylights out of the apostles. Because sometimes in the midst of our enthusiasm and our ecstasy, we are also scared to death, don't know what the implications are going to be, and filled with anxiety and dread. So they fall down to the ground, they're prostrate. And in this account, Jesus comes up to them and he touches them. And he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And it strikes me as uh, the, the, the reminder that when we have transformative experiences, 
we shouldn't be afraid of them either or run away from them. Uh, the Greek word for transfiguration, here he goes again, is metamorphosis. In, in English, metamorphosis. Okay. So that's what it, 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 he's described as having happened to him and that the apostles uh, see this. So as you move towards Ash Wednesday, uh, think of Lent not as a time to give up C's candy. You know, the bishop, I'm going to produce it. The bishop wrote a great letter, a pre-Lent letter in the, in the, along the King's Highway where she referred, referred to austerities for the well-fed. <laughs> right. So let's try to avoid that. But understand that uh, this is a time to uh, focus yourself on um, how you're doing, what the promises were made during your baptism, what does it mean to change the direction that you're looking for happiness, uh, and always understand that God's transformative power is present to you always. Amen. Amen.